to the Retreat House Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Smith. I've invited a friend to the table to share their story. Come and join us. Welcome to the table. We're continuing our series called What's Your Story? And today I've invited another friend from Azer, which you heard about (laughs) just a couple weeks ago about what Azer is. Um, but another friend from Azer who is doing something that I think is really, really important and really needed in our culture today. So I've in- invited Tamise Spencer to join me on the podcast today. She has, yeah, she has started a ministry called Subculture, and which we're going to talk about today. She is a wife and a mom and served in ministry for years and years and years. I met her through, like I said, through Azer Collective and was struck with this joy that's within her and kindness and started following her and just really appreciate uh, her outlook on the world and the things that she has to say and her willingness to be honest and vulnerable about her experience. So welcome, welcome to me. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be at the table. (laughs) Is there anything else that you would like to say by way of introduction? Uh, no, I think that you did a pretty good job. I, uh, yeah, I'm a mom. That's probably my most important job, second to being a wife. And mm-hmm. now I'm a CEO. And so life's a little bit crazy, right. as you can imagine. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's good to be here. I'm thankful to be here. So let's start out a little bit about what subculture is. And sure. then we'll go back and do the backstory of it. So sure. what what is, well, it's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So what, yeah, it's a yeah, faith-based nonprofit that basically seeks to uh, equip uh, organizations and ministries to serve students of color on campus. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of our elevator pitch <laughs> yeah. for you. Which uh, which speaks a little bit to your backstory, too. And yeah. I couldn't remember the name of the ministry that you worked in, but you worked in college ministry for years. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I worked for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for about six and a half years. Okay. Before that, I was in another ministry in Kansas City for six years. So I've been working with young adults for the last 13, 14 years. Um, and then with InterVarsity, I did work primarily on historically black colleges and universities, which was a bit of a shift for me from the context I was in before that. And I guess, you know, that kind of leads into subculture in the sense that when I was working with African-American students who were marginalized in certain ways, I realized that their obstacles and their resistance and the barriers they faced when it came to being open to the gospel were very different than what Mm -hmm. I had experienced in in Kansas City. And most of them, the barriers had to do with socioeconomic issues or, or race issues, things that affected them. Um, in terms of their ethnic background and their their experience in college that had to do with being able to eat, having a place to live, not being sure semester to semester whether or not they would be able to stay in school. And for some of them, it was really important. They were first-generation students, mm-hmm. which just means they're, they were the first in their family to go to college. And so it kind of created a little bit of dissonance for me because I loved my job and I, and I absolutely love the organization I work for, but I wasn't actually able to step into those situations in any way that was practical. And so I kind of felt like there was a little bit of... Um, a little bit that was lacking in terms of the gospel I was presenting to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I've always had the heart of an evangelist. And so for me, I'm always trying to get to the bottom of whatever the barrier is. And so subculture was kind of born out of that tension. And so what we try to do is come alongside organizations and ministries to help them serve students of color in a more comprehensive way. And because I was a part of so many great ministries in terms of my, my own experience in ministry, I felt like, you know, we don't really need to reinvent the wheel, but I do think we do need to reinforce the wheel. Mm-hmm. And so what subculture does is we raise funds to develop what we're calling our student transition and relief fund. And so we specifically step into uh, scenarios where students or even staff of color who are in full-time ministry are facing crises that would impede their ability to graduate, stay on staff. So anything from enrollment, employment, physical well-being, Um, or academic success. We step into those spaces in partnership with organizations and ministries and offer scholarships. But I think what makes subculture cool is the way that we generate revenue 
other than fundraising is that we we seek to do diversity consulting. We do Black History 101. Mm-hmm. I've noticed from a lot of my white brothers and sisters who are so interested and intrigued by the conversations, uh, one of the main things that come up in our conversations is the conversation is so vitriolic mm-hmm. um, and so politicized that there's this fear of saying the wrong thing or feeling like I don't even know where to begin in the journey. And I thought like, you know, there's no reason why people outside of the body of Christ should be controlling this narrative. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I'm trying to do with subculture is create on ramps. So for ministries and organizations who are already serving students of color, but want to be more comprehensive, we come in and help them with strategy for ministry leaders or ministers or just people who are in organizations that feel like I don't even know where to begin. We've developed curriculum that they can do where it offers them privacy and dignity to learn kind of Mm -hmm. at their own pace. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of those weeks of curriculum, we do a a face-to-face connect where they can process and ask questions in a way that's not going to, well, we all know how social media um, (laughs) can can be these days. And so I feel like there um, are a lot of things that I'm passionate about. I have a lot of experience in these areas. And so I feel like, you know, with brothers and sisters, we're going to walk it out together. And so those are the kinds of things I'm trying to create. And then we're doing on-site intensives, which kind of combines both of those things. And it's like a two to three day retreat with my team. And we try to generate revenue that way. And that revenue goes into the scholarships. And then we're creating a, um, a retreat for marginal ministers. We know that people who work on the margins or who work in low income, high risk areas, they sometimes tend to not rest very well, but rested leaders are better leaders mm-hmm. and they don't rest because there's always so much to do and there's almost so much going on. And so we're trying to create a five star experience and a two star budget for them. And the conference fee that they pay to come will actually go back into their students. And so they're serving their students in two ways by resting, mm-hmm. but by also paying the registration fee the money's going right back into practical needs, the student space. So that's the culture in a, well, that was a not really a nutshell, <laughs> but uh, I'm passionate about it. So, yeah, well, I didn't realize, I love that. I didn't realize that it was so, that you were trying, that your purpose is to meet practical needs. Yes. Not only have difficult conversation and to bring about education, but also yes. to meet the practical needs. Yes. And as yes. you were talking, I remembered we actually met at If Gathering, which was in February, mm-hmm. and so it was Black History Month, and yes. I started following you on Instagram or Facebook, one of them, and you mm-hmm. were doing a whole series, the whole month, yeah. of Black people in history that are not in our textbooks. Yeah. That we mm-hmm. hadn't heard of. And I, I, like I, every day I was eating it up and feeling like, why... <laughs> Why don't, why, why don't I know this? Why do yeah. I know who these people are? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah it's, it's kind of hard. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to, um, you know, what's interesting is as I get in conversations with just beloved friends and, and conversations where they're brave and have this courage to enter in and, you know, they'll say like, I just never knew or like, how did I not know? And I think, you know, I've been talking with some friends about, the 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 weird bifurcation we have between theology and history um, in the church, and I think that our theology really should be informed by history, because I think that there are ways in which our history and our context play into and is infused in the way that we read scripture. And then if it's infused in the way that we read scripture, then it's definitely infused in the way that we perceive what's happening around us and the way that we uh, walk out our Christianity. And so what I found is that um, this passion of mine just for history in general um, has really come in handy Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in terms of having conversations. And people really love to hear stories about um, heroes in the black community. And I think that it's a really interesting and somewhat of a sad reality that that you know in terms of black history that these are people that are widely unknown but who are real heroes and who really made strides for an entire people in America um and that for the most part a lot of Americans don't even know who they are and so that that's kind of sad and you know we could you know be bitter about it or we could change it so mm-hmm. we're just trying to use obviously the relationships that we already have and it's going good so far. It's going pretty well. People are really eating it up, like you're saying. And um, I'm, I'm just thankful and 
yeah, I've never felt more um, alive in in terms of like what God has gifted me for and Mm -hmm. called me to. So I'm excited about this time. Well, and I think your just who you are and your personality. I mean, even when I introduced you from the first time I met you, there Mm. was some I remember we were sitting at this great big table with a whole bunch of people. And there was something about your personality that I thought like I just wanted to lean in. Wow, thank and, you. And then this last fall when we were at Azer and you were talking yeah. a little bit more about subculture, you were sharing about your experience with um, Trayvon Martin when he yeah. died. And your experience of that was completely different than mm-hmm. my experience of it mm-hmm. and totally shifted. You know, I, I well, will you, will you talk a little bit? about sure yeah yeah so yeah I don't know you guys can't see this but um, Angie can and Trayvon's Mm -hmm. on my wall I mean there was a real shift in my pretty much everything I think um the main thing that made Trayvon stick out to me because we know that for sure he wasn't the first unarmed African-American young man to be gunned down but I remember when it came on the screen on the news and um, Trayvon's tennis shoes, he had the exact same tennis shoes as my younger brother. Mm. And so, um, you know, they were, they had covered him in the sheet, but his shoes were sticking out and something about that struck me. And, And at the time I was in a context that was predominantly Caucasian. And for some reason, I don't know whether it was just God's timing or, or what, but for some reason, this particular instance hit me really, really hard. And um, so I began to kind of talk about it with my friends. And I guess, you know, it probably wasn't new sentiments that I was hearing from them, but I was hearing them this way for the first time. And it was like, well, you know, what did he do? He must have done something. And, you know, mm-hmm. we need to wait till we have all the facts. And But the initial responses were nothing, were, weren't anything close to mourning or sadness. They were more... Um, defensive or stoic and I just remember how can you how can we not be on the same page about this and you know I thought we were pro-life and I thought we were all of these things and so it, it was just very very I couldn't fathom it and so throughout that process we really went through a lot of pain in terms of what am I a part of and why don't people care and and why isn't this ripping them apart? I can't sleep. Um, my stomach hurts. I, and, uh, I didn't understand what was going on. And then obviously of course, uh, Jordan Davis happened a few, maybe a month or so later. And Jordan Davis was gunned down in a separate part of Florida because his music was too loud. And, um, then you had Michael Brown and then you had Tamir Rice and there was just sort of you know, 2012 to 2014, there were a lot of ways that these people could have entered into the pain with me. There were Mm -hmm. a lot of opportunities. And so it was a pretty hard process of going, well, does God care about this? Because the people who are teaching me about God and the people who are running after God with me seem to not care. And if there is any amount of caring, it's not, it's not in a way that's offering the benefit of the doubt to the slain person. Mm -hmm. And so I had to work through a lot with that. And, um, one day it really felt like the Lord just met me in a prayer time about what it feels like to, uh, be abandoned, um, in a time of great need, but also what it means to, to be slain in public, um, like that God becomes flesh in Christ and mm-hmm. actually dies a death that was unjust. And so it, it began to have conversations with God around that and realizing, OK, well, OK, so God, the Father and the Spirit is here with me. And so I'm not crazy for for being torn up over this and devastated by this. And so what does that mean? Um, and, and I'll have to be honest, there was a bit of anger um, in that time frame because, you know, there were secular groups coming out saying, you know, Black Lives Matter. And then it was almost immediately being met with these counter narratives of like, no, it's everyone. And um, which was which was weird for me because I thought, you know, I don't think that I think both of these things are true. This just needs to be highlighted in light of what's happening. And so it was a very hard time. And then there was also a temptation where, you know, you're hearing silence in those who are your brothers and sisters by blood, by the blood of Jesus. But then you're hearing these people who are not necessarily in relationship with Jesus, who are expressing sentiments that you feel. And it was a very hard tension. And so I kind of forged my way through that. 
began to write a little bit about it, talk a little bit about it. And I found safe spaces. I mean, Azer was one of the first safe spaces I felt like I could articulate what was happening. But I, I think I needed the the affirmation from the Lord, like this matters to the Lord, whether or not um, other people are acknowledging that. And more so, not only does it matter to the Lord, but he, he wants us to do something about it. And so that kind of gave me a little bit of permission, I think. So I'm so thankful to Trayvon because he changed my life and uh, he gave me the permission that I needed to um, rebel against indifference and resist evil in a way that has really kind of permeated our culture for a long time. Mm -hmm. And as I've done that, I've lost a lot of friends, but I've also gained a lot of friends. And, And also, you know, subculture... What I hope, what I hope is that I'm able to create jobs for people too, because I think, I'm not sure kind of the makeup of your listeners, but I think one of the hardest things during that time frame for people like myself who were in full-time ministries and who are working for ministries who are largely, I guess, majority donors, mm-hmm. um, was that we felt we couldn't speak to certain things and you felt sort of hindered. I mean, I I think I lost, I think I told you this, Angie, that I lost about, I think uh, it was, it was about $1,200 a month in terms of my support base um, because I posted the hashtag for for my personal support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, This is while I was on ministry in Mm -hmm. in ministry with another organization. And so um, that was really hard because now not only does my pain keep me up at night, but now my pain and my being vocal about this pain is actually affecting me economically. Mm-hmm. And so one of the main things I want to do with subculture is create a space for um, people of color, um, for white allies to be free to express um, how they feel and, and not have it affect their stability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're, I mean, I'm out here networking and, and uh, trying to raise the funds that we need to take care of students and help them, finish school, but also to create jobs for individuals who care about young people, but don't want to feel like uh, they're having to sort of be stifled or dance or that's a really, really hard place to be. It's mm-hmm. a really, it's not a very comfortable way to do ministry. No. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was a long answer to your question, but yeah, that's kind of oh, yeah. uh, how Trayvon well, played into my life. Yeah. And the, the, what I remember thinking is, oh, for for me, that was, I, I obviously remember it happening and I remember the deaths that followed, but I, I didn't have the same reaction. You know, okay. he, I, well, I don't have little brothers, but, you know, to have a sibling or somebody that you know to have the same shoes or that okay. it made me look at some of the young black men in my, at my church. And, okay. you know, what if that was one of them? What if that had okay. happened to one of them? And sure. this, uh, I looking, I mean, I really had to, uh, it made me just you telling your story, you weren't turning to me and saying, Angie, you need to take a look at yourself. That wasn't it at all. Mm-hmm. You were mm-hmm. just sharing, but what you shared made me take a hard mm-hmm. look at myself and really mourn that I would probably have been one of those voices that was saying to you, oh, we need the whole story and, and mm-hmm. think that I was just being really level-headed about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have realized how how hurtful that would mm-hmm. have been. So I'm mm-hmm. so grateful that you shared that and that the the bravery, I mean, and the, mm-hmm. I mean, it was so risky. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you may not have known that at the time, but it, mm-hmm. it became risky, but you continued to yeah. to be brave and and to speak and to shine a light, which I'm yeah. I'm so so grateful. Thank you. And in that conversation we were having too, you went on to talk about the idea of how the you know the idea of white Jesus, what yeah. that has done to black youth. Yeah. Yeah. So we talk a little bit about that too, because that was like yeah. the whole time you were talking. I'm like, oh my goodness, sure. like this is yeah. These are things that. Are, are not on my radar and oh yeah weren't yeah. on my radar and they are now and I'm I'm so yeah. grateful yeah I'm in a great time of uh oh man I'm alive right now I'm working on so many things because I think once I got free from you know I've been thinking a lot about this and I think this conversation can cause a lot of guilt and shame for people and I, I want to steer so clear of that 
because that's not our portion in Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think also that can be an excuse to cop out. And as as believers, we really we've got to come together and we've got to we've got to work against these um, things that are at work in our country that are very divisive. Mm -hmm. Because you and I are sisters in Christ. Yes, absolutely. We are serving the same God. Absolutely. And this relationship between the two of us matters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. And and it becomes about the family of God and and following Jesus and and doing the work that he has put before us. Absolutely. And he's about people knowing him. He's about us being unified in him. He's about mercy and truth and reconciliation and redemption. Absolutely. And those are the things that we're supposed to be about. Absolutely. And, you know, when you think about the the power of the gospel and the work of Christ and how that played out, even in history, it almost always culminates in issues like this, Mm -hmm. whether it's Jew and Gentile, whether it's men and women, whether it's um, slaves and and the wealthy, the power of the gospel. I think what the, the gospel does in terms of redemption and reconciliation and justice is that it's, you know, it. For those who are powerful, it teaches them how to be vulnerable. And for those who are extremely vulnerable, it empowers them. Mm -hmm. And hopefully if we all embrace those or, you know, for those who are in in power to embrace humility and vulnerability and for those who are vulnerable for for as the powerful embrace that vulnerability they begin to lend some of that to those who are um extremely vulnerable um due to no faults of their own that we kind of meet in this place in the middle mm-hmm. and um and that to me is the picture of justice and i think if we could talk about it that way then maybe we can kind of sidestep some of the mind, the minefield of saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. But it's about it's about meeting in this middle place, um, because, you know, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider his equality with God as something to be used for his own gain. Right. But he is a he is the son of God. So he understands privilege mm-hmm. <laughs> um, probably more than any of us do. And what does he do with that privilege? He uses it for the benefit of others. And so I think that we can do that from that perspective. And then and then we think about how he was born in Nazareth and how he fled to Egypt as a refugee. And so he's able to even understand the oppressed and come mm-hmm. up and elevate those people um, and not let those things define or hinder him. But he understands that process. And I think there is room in Christ for us to to understand the other's perspective in a way that it helps us appreciate the other. And I think that that's the reason why it's so important for us to have these conversations and to know that we're going to step in it sometimes, but to Mm -hmm. also say that is part of what it means to be reconciled to one another. The reconciliation that we have to the father was a man stripped and beaten and slashed open and humiliated on a cross. Mm -hmm. And so that is a very messy, messy, messy process. So I think that if we can kind of keep that in mind, that it was the joy that was set before him Mm -hmm. that caused him to endure all of that, that for us, it can be the same. And that for the joy that's set before us, the joy of, of a diverse, unified family of God who embrace and celebrate differences in so much as they glorify Jesus and in so much as they they separate and divide us we submit those things and we surrender those things but I think that it's not man I think you know the glory of God is at stake when we don't do this and when we don't enter into this process and I I really don't think that addressing these issues is divisive I think that the divisiveness is here. It's, it's almost, um, you know, I was talking to some friends the other day and we were talking about, well, you know, we bought into this, this lie in America and things like that. And, you know, as I thought about it and thought about some of the deep relationships that I have with my friends, um, who are not um, people of color, the way that they describe it, I wouldn't even say, I think saying that we bought in sounds a little bit more intentional and deliberate. And for some of them, I don't think it's been that. So I've kind of said, you know what, I think it's more so that we've inherited a perspective yeah, <laughs> based on the foundations of our country. Yeah. And so we, we really need to kind of examine some of that for I, sure. I was just having a conversation yesterday and, and was trying to articula- articulate that, 
And I was calling it like a cultural download that we get yes. when we're mm-hmm. born. Absolutely. That there are things that are just a part of our belief system or things that are sort of ingrained in us that we're not yes. ever conscious. Yes. But then I think the important thing is to, I mean, to, to talking to the vulnerability that you were talking about and sure. the honesty to when something, so I'm a white woman. So for example, when mm-hmm. something comes up in me and I say something or I think something and it is horrifying because mm-hmm. it is a racist thought or mm-hmm. uh, a racist speech mm-hmm. that I don't know it until I hear it. And then the 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 gut reaction is to try to backtrack and to say, mm-hmm. oh, no, it wasn't because mm-hmm. it's not nice. It doesn't feel good to say, yes, it mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. But to your point about the gospel, about being about Jesus, like that is a dark thing that is within mm-hmm. me. That's darkness that's mm-hmm. within me. And mm-hmm. I'm going to be better if that darkness mm-hmm. is taken out and mm-hmm. brought into the light and mm-hmm. dealt with. So, right. I mean, even for me and my relationship with God, it's important mm-hmm. to be able to be honest about that. Sure, yeah. But then to, I, I mean, I just didn't realize that when you try to explain it away, how that is crapping basically on mm-hmm. people saying, that's not an okay thought. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's not an okay, like that's, that's a racist thing to say. That's a white privilege mm-hmm. thing to say. And it's, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. No, it's fine. It's a very passionate subject. So yeah, that, yeah, I'm following you though. But, yeah. but what, when, if someone were to say to me, Ooh, Angie, For me to be able, if I were to backtrack and say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't, that's not what I meant, that's not what I meant, Mm -hmm. that kind of Mm -hmm. craps all over the way that they're feeling Mm -hmm. and the way that they're experiencing it it, instead of me saying, Mm -hmm. oh, my goodness, that I did Mm -hmm. say that, I think that's inside of me, that is not what I meant, Mm -hmm. and and I'm Mm -hmm. so sorry, and Mm -hmm. engaging instead of the defending, like coming in with, uh, instead of coming up with, you know, walls up and hands arm length out coming in with you know what I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to what you say yeah 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 I mean I think um it's funny because I'm tracking with you and um you're saying things and I'm like yes I'm thumbs upping you and at the same time I'm thinking you know for those listeners who are not familiar with these conversations those words are like uh, they're triggering yeah mm-hmm. and so so if I could I wanted to I've been using this with some of my friends who have been like okay I'm gonna wait in but please be gentle mm-hmm. and it's it's really funny because it's like we you know what in some ways because of Jesus we have more in common than I do with with people in my own family sometimes you know mm-hmm. so but but I understand because of the way that society has taken this conversation and made it something else but i call it the sst or the subway sandwich theory and just follow me for a minute but like um instead of the conversation centering around um i think for for my white brothers and sisters what they hear in these conversations is you yourself are racist Mm -hmm. um but if we could take it out of that pocket and we could talk about it in terms especially if it's on a friendship level if we could talk about it in terms of trusting your brother or sister so I don't know about you, but like every time I go into Subway and I order my sandwich and I come out, um, I feel fine. I feel like nothing has changed. And I get in the car and my husband or my, whoever I'm with might say, man, you smell like Subway. <laughs> like, um, And if you've ever been around somebody who's gotten lunch in a Subway, mm-hmm. the smell of Subway is all in their clothes. Mm-hmm. They might not know. They just walked in and walked out and came out with a sandwich. And I think in the same way, if we could think of it, I know that that's a very basic <laughs> way of thinking about it. But if we could think of it in terms of like trusting the senses of another person and like if we if America was this proverbial subway mm-hmm. and 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 thinking about all of the ingredients in a subway that create this smell that is so easily seeps into our clothes um, in the same way America's foundations had nothing to do with us but there are ingredients in the ways that our nation was formed mm-hmm. and the thought processes that that uh, inform the ideologies in our country that are ingredients that that create a smell. The difference is that some of us weren't allowed into the subway. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so what happens is it's, it's way easier for us to identify the smell. And if we're willing to humble ourselves and say, 
you know, for those of us who come out of the subway with our sandwiches, if we could humble ourselves and say, like, if a person says, you smell like you were in subway, if we just can trust that, if we could just trust the senses of our brothers mm-hmm. and sisters, because no one is saying, like, you're a subway store, like, you, you stink. Just more like, hey, I'm smelling this in your clothes. Mm-hmm. And having the conversation from there um, and then helping, you know, helping to to kind of take this conversation and put it into a a less intense frame Mm -hmm, (laughs) um, mm -hmm. might help us because no one would argue that. And I'm sure that every one of us has been around somebody who's been in subway and we know that it's just a natural thing and it's no fault of the person. They Mm -hmm. just wanted lunch, but it doesn't necessarily take away from the byproducts or the, the, the consequences of standing in line in a subway. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for me, that's kind of how I try to (laughs) communicate the ideas in a way that this is an inherited, inherited perspective that, that until someone points it out to you, you might not be aware of. And mm-hmm. and nobody would say that you yourself stink. They would say, you just smell like the place that you've been in. And I, and I have a more keen awareness of that scent than you. And so that kind of does play into uh, my students, especially with historically black campus students. They're a whole nother mission field because they are taught about race, black history and white supremacy in math class. I mean, they're getting it in math. They're getting it on the walls on the way to the bathroom. And so if you if you try to step into a a space like that or a context like that and you have not examined those factors in the in the gospel that you share um, or examine even the, the ways that you express the truth of God in those contexts, they will eat you alive <laughs> um, because it's just they can, like you know, to borrow again from the, the sin, they can smell that stuff a mile away. And there's nothing compelling about a Jesus who smells like Subway. Mm-hmm. Like there's just not. And so um, I've had so much fun in terms of my own progression of faith in realizing, man, this stuff has nothing to do with Jesus, not nothing. And to be able to look um, an African-American 21-year-old in the face and go, let me tell you about Sub-Saharan Africa and how the gospel was expressed there. And let me tell you about Ethiopia. Let me tell you what it was like for most of the things that we believe in Christianity to have taken place in Egypt, which is in Africa, you know, and, and to be able to say, to sort of dignify them in their ethnic identity without compromising the gospel. I'm, I'm having a blast. Like (laughs) I am having a blast with it. And I think that there is an opportunity really again for not only an opportunity, but I think it's an opportune time right now to begin to think about the ways that we can extract some of that stuff from the gospel, not only here in America, but kind of what are we even you know, manufacturing and, and sending out into the nations. And I think it's going to be a time for for all of us to sort of examine what kinds of things are have infused the way that we communicate the good news and what things should we keep and what things should we toss. And I'm one million percent sure that the potency and the uniqueness of Jesus will not be affected by us doing this. Yeah. <laughs> if I, anything, it will be increased. <laughs> I just did a Bible study on the Shema. And yes. through the Bible project. Sure. And they, so then they took each of the words in that verse, the main words, and one of them was soul. And the Hebrew word is nephesh. Yeah. And they go through that, that the idea of soul that we have in Western culture is yeah. that it's something that leaves our body when we die. Mm-hmm. But in, to the Hebrew people, it was not that, that nephesh actually means, literally means throat. Yes. And it's more of a whole being like a, a an animal has a nephesh. Uh-huh. It's the, uh-huh. the living being piece of them. Uh-huh. And I was sitting there watching that and thinking, oh, my gosh, like how I, I like I feel like I'm in a time where I'm taking like American Christianity and Jesus, like the uh-huh. historical context and having to rip yeah. it apart. And then sure. when I learned this thing about nephesh of, oh, my goodness, like even Greek philosophy has leaked into the theology of of what Uh we've learned and so and and then i for lent i had done a on the bible app again i had done an african lenten study Uh Uh and so they would 
talk about different African proverbs from different countries all over Africa because Africa is not one thing. It's a whole bunch of countries and cultures. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. And then would address, you know, how, you know, this proverb and this culture within Africa and and then how they would live out or how they would look at this particular scripture. And I just felt like my mind was blown and like there was all of this texture of of what the Bible was saying because Uh like and I've talked a lot about how like I see like if God were a statue and I'm Uh I can see this side of the statue like Uh I only see this side when I talk to other people especially people from other cultural backgrounds about Uh their view of God I feel like I get a more 3d picture of that statue I get a more 3d picture of God and Uh so and vice versa yes and and so like I I guess what I'm saying is that it it's we good. I understand how much what you're saying about how much it means to those students who are going to historically black colleges. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I think too, like if other people, you know, from other places and other cultural backgrounds, were willing to to hear that and learn that and listen to that, sure, like yeah. all of a sudden it's going to become more textured and more yes. meaningful and rich to them as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about it in terms of just like, you know, the the sad thing about not examining these things or sort of avoiding these conversations is um, we really we miss out on the richness that that's contained in the scriptures. I was I was reading Ephesians two the other day with my friends, and we were thinking about this idea of citizenship and being foreigners, strangers, aliens, um, but being brought into this kingdom and we're citizens and thinking, you know, I appreciate this. I can get it. Nothing about the gospel is diluted without me having a thorough understanding about, of this. But think about how a Latino or Latino, uh, Latina sister or brother could communicate the idea of citizenship to us in a way that we just take for granted and how powerful those truths um, would be hitting somebody, especially at this time and thinking we need that, you know, like you're saying, like Mm -hmm. we need that perspective because we will all love Jesus more. And so I think that there is a way, a way in which what we've been given or again, inherited, it's robbing us of, seeing the beauty of Jesus and, and the and the richness and the power of his gospel, especially because you have native believers who are here and you have African believers who are transplanted here and the ways that they have maintained a faithful um, devotion to Christ when everything would tell them otherwise. I mean, even people using the scriptures to say that they were not human. Mm-hmm. They were somehow able, by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God, to to resist that and find Christ. Um, and I think we really need to hear from them and to make space for for them. And um, again, it's going to take some of the giving away some power and embracing vulnerability, which I think will probably, you know, there are. I think in terms of ethnic groups, I think there are even different crosses we have to bear. And I think that power is so seductive and deceptive that I think for right now, this is this is my white brothers and sisters, this is their moment to sort of grapple with this cross, right? And it's not so much that, that other groups have not had to bear crosses, it's just that They've been bearing those crosses, I think, in a way. And because of the what, what um, Sun Chan Ra calls the browning of America, I think that, that now it's the turn of our Caucasian brothers and sisters to, to sort of bear a cross. And here's the thing about that is that Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus carry his cross. And that and, you know, Cyrene was a very brown place. It was close to Africa. Mm-hmm. And so I think for for African-American brothers and sisters, we don't get to sit back and say, it's your turn. We have to carry the cross with our white brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And I think that the cry, I think when we were talking at Azer, it was more so like the feeling that these people are not even willing to bear this cross with me. And they have an oper- They can opt in or out of this pain anytime they want to. Um, and I think that 
because God is good and would have it that we all uh, mature and that we all grow up into Christ. I think it's a moment right now, especially in our country, where I think it's the shoe is going to be on the other foot. And it will be a test for not only white brothers and sisters of how low they're willing to go, but also for people of color. Because the idea is not replacing white supremacy with black supremacy. It's removing both of those things for Christ supremacy. And I think that if we can all kind of hold fast to that, that we could see something in America that has never been seen. And again, I'm working with students because, you know, partly I'm selfish and I'm a glutton for excitement. And uh, I know that pretty much every major movement in history has started on college campus. <laughs> so that's why I choose to kind of like make my dwelling among them. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of boring myself, but I hang around with cool people. It's the trick I use. <laughs> I hang around with, uh, with college students and it keeps me fresh. <laughs> um, but I, I really do feel like focusing on students and having these conversations in the church and then finding ways to connect with students of color and communicate a comprehensive gospel to students, we're going to see something explode. And, you know, for a long time, people have been crying out for revival. And I think that, well, my friend Erin, she said, um, she said, well, you know, what's funny is that all of my white friends, she's she's a white woman, but she said, we're all praying for revival. And yet our brothers and sisters have been crying out for justice. And she's like, you know, I wonder, she's like, I just wonder why there's a disconnect mm-hmm. <laughs> here. I think God's about to do something marvelous in our eyes and in our sight. And and it will be a test. It will be a test of like, who's willing to really humble themselves? Because what does it look like for somebody like me if I hadn't said yes to the work of the spirit and to the pain of all of that happened with Trayvon, you know, it's very tempting to step outside of the body of Christ and join with these people who are at least expressing your sentiments and even your vehemence at some stuff. But I, you know, as a believer, this is my family for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really hard place for African-American believers to be. Um, to say, well, I can't even leave this group behind, really, <laughs> because, you know, this is my family. But I wish that I wish that they knew the cross that I'm carrying. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people like you are making space for it, at least people to just hear about it and it, to, to begin to think about it. And I really appreciate it. And I've had some great conversation with the Azers. I mm-hmm. mean, those are some <laughs> phenomenal, sharp women. <laughs> for sure. So, yeah. 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 Well, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because I think where I have gained understanding is in places like, well, first of all, I read Jonathan Merritt's book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Uh which I think as a foundation, if you're going to be willing to not let yourself get triggered and tripped up by words, that Uh book is a fantastic place Uh to start. And not only in conversations about race and racial reconciliation, but just in conversation, I read his book. And then I read Austin Channing Brown's I'm still here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And her phenomenal book. Yeah. But but her words, she used white supremacy a lot. And Uh that conjures something up in me that I'm not sure is what she meant. But Uh I had learned from Jonathan's book to let words words have meaning but also people bring their own meaning to words and flex and, and don't stop listening because a word uh-huh. triggers you. And so I read her book and felt like I, in the privacy of my own home, uh-huh. got a teaching uh-huh. that I needed to be taught. Um, uh-huh. But I got this opportunity to look in and to have all my thoughts and all my feelings and all my processing without being on social media or the internet or whatever. Yeah. And so I'm hoping our conversation like this to somebody who's listening, if they choose to turn it off, they can choose to turn it off. Uh But if they stay engaged to at least in the privacy of their own home or their own car or on their treadmill, be (laughs) able to to listen and and maybe do some self-reflection and maybe, you know, well, how do I feel about that? And and maybe start that process and to at least step toward it. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it's taken me years 
to get mm. to the point to be able to sit down and have a conversation like this. Sure, yeah. Partly because of my personality. <laughs> I don't like conflict. <laughs> but also that privilege that you talked about that I could dip my toe in and come out. And so I had to dip my toe in and leave my toe in. And it's it's not easy, but it, it needs to be done, especially like what you're saying is us being sisters in Christ. Yeah. And that matters. It's something mm-hmm. that I wanted to step toward. And so yeah. I guess if somebody's listening, I, I want them to hear, to, like, just take the next step toward it. Sure. Like, just yeah, do absolutely. the next thing. Let's finish, you know, don't turn this off. <laughs> you know, continue mm-hmm. listening. Look into the yeah. culture, you know, read books, look at things from a perspective that's different than yours, but stay engaged. Yeah, absolutely. In it. And it won't be easy, but it, it will be worthwhile. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's what it means to love. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's what it means to love. Well, and it reminds me of any painful thing that I've walked through, like walking through grief. It was it was hard and I didn't want to choose it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I didn't choose it, but I'm better mm-hmm. on the other side of it mm-hmm. for having mm-hmm. gone through it. Yeah. I think that that's the, um, you know, I'm happy that you said that because I think that it's not to imply that... Um, I know there have been voices outside of the body that have made asinine comments about uh, white people don't know struggle, and they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think the difference is that the only difference is that white people don't know struggle because of their race. And so that's the difference, I think. Mm-hmm. And if we could just, I'm really just trying to take some of the sting out of some of these sound bites. So that it becomes by no means becomes an easy thing for people to enter into because it's not going to be easy. And and uh, I'm talking with a friend right now who's studying missions and the history of missions. and She is having a rough time. <laughs> so I'm trying to, you know, you know, it's just mm-hmm. it's hard when you start to your eyes get open to some of these realities. So I, I don't want to make that less true and real. But I also don't want to give. I don't want it to be so traumatic to enter in right. um, that you just decide not to ever. Because in a way, you're, it's like you are sacrificing solidarity. Mm-hmm. And um, if there's anything that we need right now, it's solidarity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about, <laughs> is there any, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to mention? <laughs> Was I my question, doubt but, it. I know, highly yeah. doubt it. <laughs> is there anything about I think we've touched everything except, uh, well, I don't even know. <laughs> Where can people, if people want to find out more about subculture, where can they do that? They can go to www.subcultureinc.org. Okay, and I'll make Um, sure that's in the show notes too. Yeah, so I'd love to connect further with people. And I I really just appreciate being on the podcast. And for for those who stuck around and listened, uh, I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. It's been awesome. So there are two questions I ask all my guests. Sure, let's let's do it. (laughs) The first one is, how do you retreat? It was interesting to you talking about the the importance and value of retreating. And I was like, yes. So what does that look like for you? Is it a place? Is it a practice? Yeah. Well, it's a place. And so since I, now I'm back at the beach. (laughs) So um, I have an actual place. Before that, it was the Calm app. I highly recommend Mm -hmm. the Calm app. That thing is the bomb. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I love water. I don't know why, but I love being near the ocean. I think it's just this idea that there's something way bigger than me. And it just gives you perspective. So Mm -hmm. I love being around water. I love that the weather's changing. I like to be outside. But for me, just being uh, near water with a cup of coffee, <laughs> that's how I retreat. <laughs> and and when I'm really um, able to silence the traffic in my soul, mm-hmm. uh, like, that's there's no place like that. And it just takes so long, mm-hmm. you know, especially today, everything's a screen. And so um, even, you know, legitimate work is on a screen, but then you have these things pop up and then, you know, but um yeah, when I can clear out my soul's traffic and get into a place where the sounds outside of me are louder, it's so, so peaceful. And usually God doesn't speak. I think we just kind of sometimes we just enjoy the silence together. Mm-hmm. So those are places that I really that's where I find retreat. Yeah, um, one of my favorite places is northern Minnesota on Lake Superior. 
Huh. You can't see in some places. You cannot see the other side of it. The lake is so big, wow. but if so, it feels like the ocean. So I get that big, like just yes. to sit on the shore and see this expanse that you cannot yes. see the end of it in front yeah. of you. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And what you were saying about the traffic, I like that. The I had someone on the podcast once that said she tries to stop her body long enough for her yeah. soul to catch up. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And the second question I ask is, if you were to use the hashtag celebrate weird to describe (laughs) something about yourself, what would that Uh, be? Well, this is so weird. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) Um, I cannot, like... If I'm in a, again, I must, I'm, I'm sharing with you all my addiction, my coffee addiction, but I, uh, if I'm in a coffee shop, I refuse to drink coffee out of a cardboard. Mm. I will like be that person that's like, I really need ceramic mug. (laughs) Like if I'm in a coffee shop (laughs) for some reason, my friends joke me about that. And then also that I stir my coffee with a pen, a pen, a pen. Oh, a pen, like a writing pen, like an ink pen. Yeah. Ew. Sorry. I know, I know. People think that that's so weird. I don't know why I've done it. I don't know. I think it's like this. I know it's so weird. It's like this ritual. Yeah. For, you know, in my own defense, I know where the pen has been. Right. So it's your pen. It's not it's like a random pen. pen at the counter. Sure. It's not the same pen every time. So let me not, you know, paint a picture of myself that's more glorious than it is. But it's always at least my own pen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have no idea why. It's just like, I don't, I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's more substantial yeah. than those tiny little wood sticks they give you. It's, it certainly is. And for some reason, it makes me feel like I'm about to write the, the like most world-changing treatise ever or something. <laughs> I have no idea why I do this. It's very weird. I love that. It's very weird. Well, Not very many people know that. So oh, just, well, now they will. All of your followers. <laughs> If you're ever wondering if it's me in a coffee shop, just look for the pin. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Thank you so much for coming on. This, I think the work that you're doing is important. I think it's important to the world and to our culture. And I think it's important to like the family of Christ. And I, goodness, I appreciate you and what you're doing to me. Likewise. Thank you. Likewise. I'm sure I'll see you at the next gathering. Yep. Before. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you for joining me at the table. Any links or anything that we talked about during the show can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. Or if you've already subscribed, please go leave a review so others can find us too. If you want to keep up with what's happening with Retreat House, you can find us at at Retreat House Podcast. If you want to keep up with what's happening with me, you can find me at at Angela Smith MN. Again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week at the Retreat House Podcast. Mm-hmm.